Welcome back to Mox Madness. All right, we are back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. This is Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be taking you through the Tour de Force. I think I said that exact phrase last week. I come up with new catchphrases. Uh, <laughs> we're going to take you through uh, Kwame Nkrumah's neocolonialism. Um, but before we do that, uh, actually, no, not before we do that, because we promised you that there would be no current events this week. So no yeah. current events. You'll get your current events next time. <laughs> I understand how time works linearly and that it, it will be in the past again, but we'll have a backlog caught up, so we'll feel more comfortable. So you're just going right. to have to take that ride with us. That's right. Economic unity, to be effective, must be accompanied by political unity. The two are inseparable, each necessary for the future greatness of our continent and the full development of our resources. There are several examples of major unions of states in the world today. In Africa Must Unite, I described some of the more important ones and warned against the danger of regional federations in Africa. Africa today is the main stamping ground of the neocolonialist forces that seek the domination of the world for the imperialism they serve. Spreading from South Africa, uh, yeah, spreading from South Africa, the Congo, the Rhodesias, Angola, Mozambique, they form a maze-like connection with the mightiest international financial monopolies in the world. These monopolies are extending their banking and industrial organizations throughout the African continent. Their spokesmen push their interests in the parliaments and governments of the world and sit on the international bodies that are supposed to exist for the promotion of world peace and the welfare of the less developed countries. Just, Again, just very aggressively and plainly pointing out oh yeah some, yeah <laughs> against such a formidable phalanx of forces how can we move certainly not singly but in the combination that will give strength to our bargaining power and eliminate so many of the duplications that give greater force and greater advantage to the imperialists and their strategy of neo-colonialism decolonization is a word much and unctuously used by imperialist spokesmen to describe the transfer of political control from colonialist to african sovereignty the motive, of, the motive spring of col- colonialism, however, still controls the sovereignty. The young countries are still the providers of raw materials, the old of manufactured goods. The change in the economic relationship between the new sovereign states and the erstwhile masters is only one of form. Colonialism has achieved a new guise. It has become neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism. Hey, Roll look at that. Credits, he did the thing. baby. Woo! Uh... <laughs> It has become, yep, uh, it has become neocolonialism, the last stage of imperialism. Its final bid for existence as monopoly capitalism or imperialism is the last stage of capitalism. And neocolonialism is fast entrenching itself within the body of Africa today through the consortia and monopoly combinations that are the carpetbaggers of the African revolt against colonialism and the urge for continental unity. We've got carpetbaggers. They're on the scene, guys. They have returned. We they need have to returned. be on the lookout for scalawags. And- scalawags are next. That's go, right. Go listen to Black Reconstruction in America if you don't get that reference. These interests are centered on the mining companies of South and Central Africa. From mining, they ramify into an involved pattern of investment companies, manufacturing concerns, transport, public utility organizations, oil and chemical industries, nuclear installations, and many other undertakings too numerous to mention. Their enterprises spill across the vast African continent and over the oceans into North America, Australia, New Zealand, Asia, the Caribbean, South America, the United Kingdom, Scandinavia, and most of Western Europe. Connections, direct and indirect, are maintained with many of the giants of American industry and finance. They are supported by leading bankers, financiers, and industrialists in the United Kingdom, France, Belgium, Germany, America, and elsewhere. 
The rotas of their directories are filled with names that have a familiar ring of those who have the least knowledge of international finance and industry. Time to find out how little I know about international finance and industry, <laughs> gang. Names like Oppenheimer, Hambro, Drayton, Rothschild de Erlanger, Gillet, Lathon, Robier, Vanderstraten, Hochschild, Chester Beatty, Patino Engelhard, Timmons are ubiquitous. Those are some ubiquitous ass names there, guys. You know them. You love them. Yeah. It's, hey, now we've all heard of them, like the Rothschilds. Oh, we've heard of the Rothschilds. And I, uh, Oppenheimer sounds, no, that's the atomic bomb guy. I, I'm not sure yeah. he was a finance capital man. Others, equally powerful in the interests they dominate, avoid the publicity of lengthy lists of their directorships, either by complete absence from the pages of directories, anxious to advertise their glories, or by coyly hiding their eminence behind a lonely announcement with name and address. These intricate interconnections of the great imperialist monopolies expose the real forces that are behind world events. They indicate also the pattern which links those events to the developing countries at different points of the globe. They reveal the duality of the interests that force the developing countries to import goods and services, which are the products of companies combined in the monopoly groups, directly exploiting their natural resources or intimately associated with them. This is a double edge to the guillotine that cuts off Africa's wealth from Africa to the greater enrichment of the countries which absorb her primary materials and return them to her in the form of finished products. Yeah, basically all of the value from labor gets created away in the metropole. So they get all of their natural resources, all of their wealth stolen away, and then they have to pay for the labor to get it back in in what's decided for them as the products they need. Exactly. David, do you want to take over? Yeah. Uh, In the newfound independence, it is these very same monopolistic groups that the new African states are obliged to turn to to supply the requirements arising from the need to lay the foundations for their economic transformation. The policy of non-alignment, whenever it is exercised, imposes the obligation to shop around, but since capitalism has come to the peak of monopoly, it is impossible for any of us to avoid dealing with a monopoly in some form or another. But it is in the nature of our arrangements with these monopolies that the freedom or otherwise of an African state lies, where we establish and maintain the integrity of our financial institutions and keep our basic projects free from imperialist control. We leave ourselves room to maneuver away with from the neocolonialism that, unfortunately, has closed its grip upon countries whose independence is overshadowed by heavy reliance upon extra-African associations. In this atmosphere of relative freedom, the giant combi- combines that open up industrial enterprises on our soil do so on arrangements that we are that are well-screened and are part of nationally planned advancement. The national banks are really na- national banks formed and run out of the country's own resources, and our financial and economic institutions are guarded against neocolonial infiltration. So, I mean, obviously, he's basically saying, like, we can't just not work with the West, right? That's just, it's impossible. They've stolen all our wealth. So we're doing everything we can to make sure we stay in control, right? The, The nature behind things is important because otherwise, you know, at some point you need to have financial institutions and trade. And so, you know, if you, if you don't change the nature of them, you're just reproducing the exact same thing. Exactly. Unhappily, these conditions are rare in Africa. Most of the territories pass into the state of national sovereignty in unvi- 
unviable circumstances that inhibit even a mediocum of free movement within national limits. They could be overcome, but only within the combined strength that continental unity and a central connective socialist policy, free of attachments to other continents, could give. As things are, most of our new states, alarmed at the prospect of the harsh world world of poverty, disease, ignorance, and lack of financial and technical resources into which they are thrust from the womb of colonialism, are reluctant to cut the cord that holds them to the imperialist mother. Their hesitancy is fostered by a sugared water of aid, which is the stopgap between avid hunger and the hope for greater nourishment that never comes. As a result, we find that imperialism, having quickly adopted its outlook to the loss of direct political control, has retained and extended its economic grip, and therefore its political compulsion, by the artfulness of neocolonialist insinuation. In system after system after system after system, it, it turns out to be the same thing, right? They they sit there and they you know make a system that's supposedly equal and supposedly free, right? But then all of a sudden, the wealthy seem to have way more power than anybody else. Um, yeah, and that that just happens over and over and over. Um, the gr- the increasing expansion of productive capacity and potential output of the advanced capitalist countries has its corollary in the necessity to export on a geometrically increasing scale the finished products of industry and the excess capital that could only further inflate competition at home, but brings rapid and high returns from the industrial-starved new nations. Hence, the fevered jostling for position in these areas, as well as in that raw materials monopoly, which is using Africa as the playground, not only of the Cold War, an aspect of the fight of capitalism for existence against socialism, but of the competitive struggle of international monopoly. North American imports in Africa rose from 10 to 3 percent, 10.3 percent in 1959 to 13.7 percent in 1962, while those from other Western countries and Japan remained the same or declined slightly. This corresponds to the increasing American investment in the continent's extractive industries and the growth of United States participation in financial establishments on the continent. American banking houses are making inroads into territories formerly catered for solely by European and British banks. The French banks still dominate in the former French colonies and the Belgians in the Congo, but this is frequently a front for American participation. Again, with hegemony, everyone is is a pawn of America, essentially, right? You're either for or against the United States, and then it's a matter of how you fit into that structure. Are you a colonized country, or are you a cooperative Western, you know, subsidiary country that's one of the former colonial masters? Absolutely. European financial advisors constantly counsel the African countries on the advantages that they can receive from remaining in association with the erstwhile mother country, while depreciating the possibilities of intra-African association. Much subtlety is employed by Lombard, the commenter of the Financial Times, in an article which appeared in the issue of 6 February 1964 of this influential London newspaper. A product of an industrial holding company, which also produces The Economist. Hey, there it is. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Boom shakalaka. (laughs) The the journal for British millionaires. Exactly. Lombard asserted that there is not much that African countries can do directly to help one another, financially at this stage of their economic evolution. 
He is, therefore, glad to see that the independent African countries are now coming to recognize that it is very much in their own interest to preserve the monetary ties which, with leading European countries they inherited from their colonial days. They obviously entertained strong suspicion that the enthusiasm their old mother countries were displaying for allowing them to remain within the monetary areas was motivated largely, if not wholly, by consideration of self-interest, and they are inclined to assume that this implied that their own purpose would be served best by following up political independence with its financial equivalent at the earliest possible opportunity. Lombard assured his readers that the Africans showed wisdom when the Secretariat of ECA, assisting the Organization of African Unity to implement its resolution on the possibility of establishing an African Clearinghouse and Payment Union, had the good sense to seek the advice of the Distinguished American Monetary Authority, Professor Triffin at Yale University. Oh, goody. Had had the good sense to to go ask America about uh their money. Yes, just need we be surprised that in his report, the distinguished American professor pointed out that it would be most unwise lightly to condemn or break up financial arrangements with major trading companies and financial centers. This, of course, we might consider neocolonialist penetration, but to Lombard, it is only one side of the picture. For there are now two worlds, and the African countries should strive to get the best of both worlds by maintaining and even further developing the relations they have with the major international monetary areas, and at the same time building their own financial self-help mechanisms. How is it possible to resolve two contradictions? Lombard does not volunteer to explain, but what he does confess is that this unresolvable two-way procedure would meet with nothing but the fullest approval from their African present monetary area associates. This says plenty, and we have no difficulty in believing what it says for the simple fact that those who control the major international monetary areas are placing their time bombs within the self-help mechanisms of African countries. For these mechanisms are controlled by the financial monopolists of imperialism, the bankers and the financiers who have been very busy in the past few years setting up establishments throughout Africa. Infiltrating into the economic heart of many countries and linking with the most important enterprises that are being established to exploit the continent's natural resources on a larger scale than ever before for their own private gain. Yeah, and I I like how he points that out, too. You know, I mean, of course they don't explain how that's ever going to solve the problem and do anything besides making them financially dependent on the West. Eh, He doesn't care. That's just that's the right way to go. It's only the smart way to go, right? It's one Mm -hmm. of those like, you know, how are you going to solve rapes and murders uh, by not turning to the rapist, murderous cops who don't solve rapes and murders type thing, except, you know, on a continental scale of, of money extortion. Though the aim of the neocolonialists is economic domination, they do not confine their operations to the economic sphere. They use the old colonialist methods of religious, educational, and cultural infiltration. For example, in the independent states, many expatriate teachers and cultural ambassadors influence the minds of the young against their own country and people. They do this by undermining confidence in the national government and social system through exalting their own notions of how a state should be run and forget that there is no monopoly of political wisdom. But with all this indirect subversion is as nothing compared with the brazen onslaught of international capitalists. Here is empire, the empire of finance capital. In fact, if not in name, 
vast sprawling network of intercontinental activity on a highly diversified scale that controls the lives of millions of people in the most widely separated parts of the world, manipulating whole industries and exploiting the labor and riches of nations for the greedy satisfaction of a few. Holy shit, that was a sentence. Yeah, no kidding. Jeez. That was a, holy cow. Yeah, Here was not, yeah. Is, is is just getting right. I, get, I think I said this before in the book, but this is, you definitely could tell he was influenced by Lenin, um, and and, and that, I, I mean, you know, from the beginning, before he even got into Lenin, he was a very, very fast-moving student. So, you know, he's a capable writer and reader and learner and capable at uh, disseminating things. But holy cow, does he also, you know, take that style the, the same as Lenin. This is like reading Lenin, except with the context and understanding of Africa. Yep. Here resides the mainspring of power, the direction of policies that stand against the advancing tide of freedom of the exploited people of Africa and the world. Here is the adamantine energy of African enemy of African independence and unity, braced in an international chain of common interests that regards the likely coming together of the new nations as a major blow in its continued domination of the resources and economies of others. Here, indeed, are the real workings of neocolonialism. Here, indeed, are the economic ramifications of the monopolies and combines. Their financial and economic empires are pan-African, and they can only be challenged on a pan-African basis. Only a united Africa through an all-African union government can defeat them. And that ends Chapter 2. Yeah, so, I mean, he's very clear throughout this, right? The only solution is uniting, and it makes a lot of sense, you know? If their strategy is to divide and conquer, and Africa as a continent has all of this wealth and all of these people for all of this strength, um, it needs everyone unified because the West, even in a disorganized fashion, even in a fashion that took blows and went at uh, the the you know each other in the world wars that's resolved in a hegemonic empire now right and under this empire of western capital and under the neocolonialism there's still advances to like your country being the one governing over over a country where they care but they mostly like we said before you know they mostly want one making sure that the economics are opened up because then every monopoly is allowed in there and then they continue to dominate, right? And so if they're coming after the entire continent and they're a broad coalition, the only way to come after it backwards is a coalition. You know, he's very much seeing like, okay, in this, you know, West versus East, I mean, he's looking at the Cold War days, there's two poles to the world. There's the Soviet pole and, you know, the Western uh, pole of capitalism. And he's like, well, how do we make, you know, a pole for africa right how do we get these this real independence where we are are the power of the world and we are driving socialism uh without just being part of the soviet union because that's that's impractical the way africa is set up or you know being part of a a loosely associated eastern bloc and so what do you do you unify africa and then you have access to all of those diverse resources that makes the west so wealthy and then you have you know ability to trade within each other and and manage things across the entire continent but you need some centralization and some coordination and then you have the power of all of the people in the continent and then you could resist that finance and so again you know it needs socialist government or it won't work it needs to be truly interested in the people and all the people but it also needs to be one unified cause it can't be this like you know this is our group versus their group because of you know either this ethnicity or this um divided arbitrarily divided in berlin border or whatever Exactly. 
And with that, we will lead into chapter three, imperialist finance. These are the hard facts of the African situation today, a process that has continued to grow and grown since the invasion of Africa by the Europeans and foreign powers. It has gained tremendous momentum in recent years with the growth of the struggle between the imperialist antagonists and between capitalism and socialism. Imperialism was, imperialism was analyzed by Lenin as the highest stage of capitalism. His exposition was written in the middle of the First World War, 1916, which was waged to determine the first major revision of imperialist supremacy. He traced the unequal development of capitalism, which caused the latecomers like Germany and the United States to form into cartels and syndicates before the earlier starters, and so brought them sooner to a higher stage of monopoly from which they challenged each other and the rest of the world imperialism. Monopoly capitalism by means of mergers, amalgamations, patent agreements, selling arrangements, production quotas, price fixing, and a variety of other common contrivances has built itself into an international confraternity. However, because of its competitive character rooted in the principle of production for private gain and the unequal development of capitalism, the struggle of the monopolies went on within the international combinations. The conflicts between the European and American financial and industrial trusts and combines for a redivision of the world's resources of raw materials and markets for investment capital and manufactured goods exploded into war when they became too intense to contain within the limits of diplomacy. The 1914-18 war brought a redivision of the globe's colonial sectors. At the same time, it created the opportunity for a socialist break in the chain of imperialism that encircled the world. A heavy blow was dealt to international monopoly capitalism with the triumph of the Russian October Revolution. From then on, it was faced not only with the struggle for hegemony within its own ranks, but which was much worse, it was forced to engage in a defensive struggle against an opposing ideology. That ideology had achieved a signal success in withdrawing a sixth of the Earth's resources from monopoly capitalism's field of operations. A fact which has never and will never forgive and was threatening to undermine imperialism's power at other strategic spots, which had softened under the blows of war. With the failure of interventionist war to subdue the new socialist state, a cordon sanitaire was raised around the Soviet Union to prevent the spread of socialist contamination to other parts of Europe. Fascism was encouraged to prop capitalism at points where it had been seriously damaged and was faced with popular discontent, as in Germany and Italy, and to bolster in those outposts which were, which were and remained semi-colonial appendages to Western imperialism, Spain, and Portugal. That paragraph right there is like a perfect encapsulation, like a, such a good encapsulation of the events that led from the middle, you know, the beginning of World War One to the very end of, you know, almost the beginning of World War Two. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, then that was a brilliant tie to each other, and you saw the pattern, right? There was, there's kind of like a mid, uh, it, it was the allies from the first war, um, but it was really more of a process of who were the latecomers to industrialize and who were not, and the latecomers were essentially, you know, Germany and, and by extension a little bit Italy, though, the European nations that had unified late. Right. And then you have America that unified late, but it's, it's untouched. It's protected by these oceans. And so America makes a coalition with the old industrialized countries against the newer industrialized countries. These newer industrialized countries, after that falters in war, um, in the colonial scramble, all of a sudden turn to fascism to, to push back socialism. 
All of the Western countries are fine with that. And it's the late industrialized European countries and the early industrialized European countries versus the former allies and, uh, which, who become allies again. And of course, because of the fascism and the ideology, once the allies are threatened, they finally realize socialism is temporarily on their side to contain this fascism, but obviously not ideologically. So that that's exactly. a great, great way of, of pointing it out and pointing out how Spain and Portugal were tied to it. I mean, that's something people forget. People, thankfully, at least recognize Japan as, as part of fascism, um, even though people don't recognize, you know, that, say, you know, the second most people lost to World War II behind the Soviet Union was actually China. But I think people forget a lot about Spain and Portugal, and especially unless they're doing some like you know, bullshit anti-communist like homage to Colo- Catalonia stuff, as if the Soviet Union wasn't the country that was supporting that fight. Exactly. These devices, however, were unable to cope with the recurrent crises that were tearing at the very heart of capitalism and sharpening the bitter contentions between rival imperialisms, which erupted into a second global world war in 1939. From this holocaust, socialism emerged as a much more threatening challenge to imperialism than ever before. At the same time, we, the peoples of imperialism's far-flung empires, had come to realize that we could have control over our own destiny and begin to make our bid for independent nationhood. Thus, imperialism came to be challenged on another front, the colonialist front. At a time when science had heightened the capabilities of the productive machinery of capitalism, thereby increasing its need for raw materials and markets for new chemically produced primary materials, manufactured goods, and overseas employment of growing capital surpluses, challenged thus by anti-colonialism and socialism, imperialism is now engaged in a to-the-death trial for survival against the forces that are antagonistic to it and that are building up across the globe, even while the internecine struggle within itself is becoming more and more more brutal. In this multi-sided struggle, imperialism has been forced into the use of many artifices to maintain itself in being by continuing the colonialist process without the benefit of colonial control. The great colonial powers were able to monopolize external trade and agriculture and industrial primary resources production in their respective subject territories. The colonies of such a lesser industrialized nation as Portugal, however, which has for centuries been a pawn of Britain and became a semi-colony of British finance, were dominated by British capital together with the international banking groups with which it is associated. Belgian financial domination of the Congo, because of the close close connections of Belgian banking institutions with such international houses as Rothschild, Lazard Fraze, and Schroeder, in the, their turn, linked with the Morgan and Rockefeller groups. Oh, there we go. We know those two. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, was shared with British, French, and American finance. The tribute drawn off by way of colonial and semi-colonial exploitation enabled the capitalist classes of the metropolitan countries to pass some of the crumbs to their working classes and thereby buy them off, especially the trade union and political leaders. When the class conflicts in these in their societies got critical, at the same t- oh yeah, at the same time the competition for sources of raw materials and the export of capital and commodities intensified as productive methods improved and goods came out of the factories on a more and more massive scale the yeah, uneven so, oh yeah go ahead. Uh, no, no so it was talking about uh, obviously you know as worker contradictions have risen up in the imperial core um we have to be bought off with bread and circus the circus of course being you know elections etc and for uh, for imperialist leanings, you know that the bullshit we're fed about 
every official U.S. enemy, you know, China, Ethiopia, whatever. Um, but the bread part is directly derived and to uphold the colonial exploitation of the global south. The uneven development of capitalism brought new contenders into the field who joined in the rivalries that had grown up with their original scramble for colonies. These deepened until they erupted in the two world wars, which, notwithstanding all the pious claptrap about there being wars fought for the maintenance of democracy. Oh, that's a good one. That's a (laughs) good one. There we go. I love that. Were in reality wars fought for the redivision of the world by monopoly capitalism. War, Clausewitz has told us, is the continuation of policy by other means. What the powerful trusts were unable to achieve by peaceful competition, their domination over larger and larger areas of the world, they embroiled their countries into military action to achieve for them. This not only gives them a wider sphere of exclusive operation, but undermines the power of competing monopolies. I I think that's a really good summation of how and why corporations... Um, control governments and why, you know, imperialist countries are so obsessed with constant war, right? It's yeah. not just the weapons manufacturers, although, of course, they're a huge deal. It's not just, you know, the the um, um, right-wingers who are super, I, I suddenly can't think of the word for afraid of everything outside your country. Xenophobic? Um, xenophobic. Uh, you know, it's not just the xenophobic right-wingers. It's also just the basic interests of finance and you know i mean we see this in in very explicit um colonial situations uh such as you know when we think back to like dole uh taking over hawaii right dole was exploiting hawaiian and taking it over for for 50 years um away from the hawaiian people to to grow pineapples and when they started losing control because hawaiian people are fighting for the land back bingo bango came in the u.s military and then it's a u.s state and, you know, you also see this, of course, on the colonial scale all over. And like Nkrumah is correctly pointing out, when those interests conflicted uh, with other colonial interests, it was like, okay, let's send the armies in and let's assert our monopoly's dominance. Exactly. This redivision of the world is not confined to the less developed sectors, but extends to highly industrialized areas. The important industrialized regions of Alassane-Laurent was a converted prize of the German invasion of France in the wars of 1871 and 1939. Hitler's campaign against Czechoslovakia was inspired by the desire to annex the highly developed manufacturers of Bohemia and Moravia, Moravia to the German trusts. French capitalists long looked with watering mouths at the rich coal mines and chemical and other industrial industries of the Saar, so close to the iron ore range of Lorraine, and seized the opportunity of the 1919 peace agreements to appropriate them to France as a reparations award. A later plebiscite won the Saar back to Germany. After the Second World War, agreement between the Wendell Schneider Krupp Trusts achieved a customs union between the German state and the Saar of France, and France, which actually makes the Saar a dependency of the De Wendel Coal and Steel Empire. Oh, oh my geez. God. That's a little bit on the nose. Yeah, uh, just a little bit. Um, yeah. Uh, never mind. No, go ahead. So I was... World- I, yeah. I, I was just thinking, like, the, the Wendell Schneider Krupp Trust is now, it's another one of those things that's been rearranged, right? We were talking about Shell and, and stuff. So, currently, Krupp is, is uh, under Thyssen Krupp. 
Um, mm. for, yeah. Yeah. Now it's a little familiar again, isn't it? Yep. 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 World War II ended in the defeat of Hitler and a temporary rebuff to German capitalism, which had to submit to a revitalizing injection of American monopoly finance. At the same time, an upheaval was taking place in the colonial world, such as to make Winston Churchill remark that he had not been made Prime Minister of Britain to preside over the liquidation of the British Empire. Yeah, see? <laughs> All the fair, brave words spoken about freedom that had been broadcast to the four corners of the earth took seed and grew where they had be- not been intended. Colonial emancipation became the dominating phenomenon of the mid 20th century, just as abolition of slavery was the course was of the corresponding period of the 19th, with just as crucial consequences in the national and international politics and economics. Post-war capitalism was had already which had already received one devastating blow after the First World War in the rise of the Soviet Union took another crushing defeat in the establishment of socialist regimes in a number of countries in Central and Eastern Europe and in China. Large sources of raw materials and financial investment and commodity markets were withdrawn from its fields of exploitation. Domestic reconstruction, at first, occupied the attention of the European countries, the United States having already received a tremendous head start by its late intervention into the war, its physical immunity from attack, and the enormous spurt given to its productive and inventive capacity as a main supplier of war materials and services, took over from Britain the leading role in international financial monopoly. I could not, I could not describe the rise of the U.S. as a hegemony better than Nkrumah just did. That was so spot on and on the nose. Um, I also want to look back. Let's see. Do, 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 do. Where is the... Yeah, the emancipation. I, I, I want to look back at something over the last two paragraphs that kind of gives me a little hope um, about okay. things. So he was talking about how... Uh, the f- brave words have been spoken about freedom to the four corners of the earth, um, and the seeds grew where they're not intended, and colonial emancipation uh, became the dominating phenomenon of the mid-20th century, just as abolition of slavery was the corresponding period of the 19th. And so if you think about that, now we've got a hopeful pattern, right? You have the establishment of Haiti in the early 19th century, and by the mid to, to late 19th century, the emancipation of slavery is happening across the board. Obviously, not universally. Like, you know, it was, it, there's still a lot of ways it, it exists in the U.S. through the prison industrial complex. We're still talking about, you know, human trafficking as a, as a phenomenon of like, you know, I mean, sex trafficking and, and domestic servants and stuff across, you know, um, Asia and West Asia, and, and I'm sure even, you know, very, oh, and, in the United States, to some degree, we know from the like Epstein flight logs, and I'm sure more than we realize across the United States and stuff. Um, there's, there's just never self-examination, right? It's always those people over there. Um, so those we only hear about the the Ford ones, except for the, the Epstein scandal. Um, but even with that, you still have you know the the broad emancipation of slavery. That was a major movement. Uh, then comes the 20th century. You have the Soviet Union established. And all of a sudden, you know, you have the emancipation of colonialism, right? For on, on again, more of a formal level, like like the emancipation of slavery was. But these these states are getting free from their colonial masters, right? Now, yeah. now you have the end of U.S. hegemony as an economic phenomenon with the rise of something the Soviet Union, even when it was big and as powerful as the United States, and had a very explicit 
poll where it controlled, you know, it, like a third of the world was socialist at that point. And obviously we've gone very, very backwards and downhill since then. Um, even then, it did not have a higher GDP than the United States. Even then, it did not knock off U.S. hegemony as a phenomenon, especially post uh, the dollar as the the world's financial standard um, and ability to, to cast sanctions everywhere. And now you have China taking over in GDP. They've already done in PPP GDP. I think it's like it's in the next 10 years, it might even be like this or next year, that standard GDP they're going to take over from the U.S. Like it's very real that empire is ending in the financial sense. And so that gives you hope that all of a sudden it'll be trendy to break away financially from Western capital could be the next wave. And these are the waves of, of liberation that come more and more and more. And again, you know, there's a level of where is it formality versus where is it useful? But every time liberation comes of some sort, even if it's not to the satisfactory level we hope, it's incredibly liberating. It is a huge move forward. Absolutely. So this this guarantees nothing, but it's a it's a very repeatable pattern that you can almost see starting to repeat again, and that that's just a, a source of hope. I just I, I saw that in the last two paragraphs and wanted to to share that with everyone. <laughs> As a result of its primacy in the financial sphere, United States foreign policy turned in a completely opposite direction of its pre-war position of splendid isolation to one of domination in world affairs. The outcropping of new states from colonial submergence raised the pivotal problem of how to retain these countries within the colonial relationship once open control was removed. Thus has opened up a new phase of imperialism, that of the adoption of colonialism to the new condition of the elimination of political overlordship of colonial powers, the phase in which colonialism is to be maintained by other means. This is not to say that the old outright form of colonialism is completely scrapped. There is plenty of evidence to show how tenaciously imperial powers cling to their colonial territories. Vietnam, Korea, Suez, Algeria are all examples of how far imperialist nations will go to hold on physically to colonies and an attitude reinforced by the interference of America as a leading protagonist in the struggle for the world monopolist control of finance capital. This struggle has been given an ideological content by invoking anti-communism as the mainspring of the battle to bring the socialist sector back uh, of the globe back into the exploitative control of Western financial monopoly. And of course, anti-communism has never died in that sense. But the the rave for the last twenty years has been Islamophobia um, and quote unquote anti-terrorism, and it's almost swinging back into anti-communism again now. Yeah, I'm about to say we're we're hot on the heels of some new. I'm sure turn turn newspaper page and China does bad something again. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. You know the, the there's just there's going to be something new every day. You know they've got Ina's Cantor pretending he's still good at basketball and not shutting his damn mouth and and even the the free Tibet stuff that. I, I think even most Western people had turned away from because it was obviously bullshit. Like why? Why do I want to, you know, bring back the the feudal empire where people were getting skinned for for not listening to slaves well enough? Um, and so that fell out of fashion, and now it's like swinging back. It's really weird. Yeah. Cuba is the outstanding example of the extremist lengths to which these power groups will go in order to re in effort to reimpose their grip where they have been ejected and to maintain what they consider a strategic bastion in the struggle for the renewal of dominion over the socialist and anti-imperialist world. Control of fuel resources is a primary motivator in the frantic combination between monopolies. 
The Saar was bandied between France and Germany because of its important coal resources. Similarly, the battle for oil has gone on since before the First World War. Middle Eastern oil, in fact, became an important objective of that war, and the struggle continued after the war by diplomatic and economic means inside the national boundaries and on the international plane. Oh, if you only knew how true that was. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mr. Krumah. Oh, it's Mm-mm. it's it. Things never change. Uh, Rockefeller. Yeah, that one. Rockefeller supremacy in oil has been stoutly contested by the Morgan groups. Oh, dear. Oh, I hate it when daddy and daddy fight. Uh, which have extended their influence by breaking into the Anglo-Dutch holdings, a one-time pres- preserve of the Rothschilds, Lazard Frey's, the Deutsche Bank, and their associates. The frenzied battle for oil monopoly has been a cardinal factor in the suppression of popular movements in colonial and semi-colonial areas of the Near, Middle, and Far East. In Latin America and North Africa, the series of events in Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Aden, Saudi Arabia, Cuba, Venezuela, Brazil, Brunei, and Algeria that have erupted in violence, revolution, and war have largely been stimulated by the struggle for control of oil. Oil finds in European centers such as Groningen and Holland have drawn the competition into the well-industrialized centers, just as the competition for coal and iron did. Competition between the oil combines is not confined to production, but extends into the distribution of petroleum products and the new byproduct industry of petrochemicals. A fierce struggle is going on all over the world as a result of the sharp increase in the quantity of oil consumed and the territorial expansion of consumption. The oil industry has from its outset been dominated by the most powerful banking interests, the Rockefellers, Morgans, Rothschilds, because of the spiraling profits it provides. Today, even with the larger royalties, the oil combines have been obliged to pay to the oil-oil trust reserves run into billions. Much has been used in investments abroad, America far and away exceeding all others. To financial reserves from oil must be added those amassed from metal and other raw material monopolies, from monopolies of food supplies and vast industrial and agricultural empires, from the monopoly network of distribution and distributive agencies, from military preparations and the several wars that have been fought with colonial peoples since the end of the Second World War, from the development of nuclear instruments of destruction and the frenzied race for leadership in the realm of space research. The, the worst part about this is if you would have just taken the last, say, two, three paragraphs and just read them to me and not told me what year this book was written in, I, I would not be able to guess where in the last 70 years... Yeah. That this book was written. It it is evergreen and ever true. It has mm-hmm. again, this is where it has that feel that imperialism had, where it's like, yeah. oh no, oh no, yeah, you're absolutely describing the thing that is that is ongoing and has been ongoing and, mm-hmm. and has been proven correct. Yep, there you are. Mm-hmm. Capitalism contains many paradoxes, all of them based in the concept of commodity production. The few rich and the many poor, poverty and hunger amid superabundance. Freedom from hunger campaigns and subsidies for restriction of crop output. But perhaps the most ludicrous is the constant traffic in the same kinds of goods, products, and commodities between countries. Everyone is busy, as it were, taking in the other's washing. This is not done out of need, but out of the compulsion of profit-making and monopoly extension. The European common market has become the apotheosis of this process, as well as the dumping ground of international investment dominated by the giant American banking concerns and their British satellites. 
the European community, of which the European common market is only one aspect, is by no means a new concept. It was a foreshadowed by Hobson in his critique of imperialism as a European federation of great powers, which so far from forwarding the cause of world civilization, might introduce the gigantic peril of Western parasites, a group of advanced industrial nations whose upper classes drew vast tribute from Asia and Africa, which the, with which they supported great masses of retainers, no longer engaged in the staple industries of agriculture and manufacture, but kept in the performance of personal or minor industrial services under the control control of a new financial aristocracy it is collective imperialism and geez that that i mean the, there's a very clear undergirding thesis of pretty much this whole book right of what neocolonialism is it is collective imperialism Imperialism. yep uh this is precisely what has happened Competition between the monopolies has produced the phenomenon of vast advertising and public relations organizations, which busy themselves selling not only goods and services, but personalities as well. These organizations and the media through which they operate, the press, radio, cinema, television, and the businesses dealing with the packaging of goods, employ huge armies of people in what are nothing more than parasitic jobs which would have no place in a sane society, producing for consumption instead of profit. As things are, enormous sums are invested and earned by the financial interests that participate in the promotion of these enterprises. But this is only a tiny facet of the fevered financial activity which is going on today in the capitalist world. Every week, every day, with almost monotonous regularity, we see the same names repeating themselves as bidders for large companies, as underwriters and issuers of new shares or holders of debentures, as combiners of new financial institutions for more universal methods of investment, as participants in new factories and ventures that will extend monopoly in fresh directions in more and more territories. Ladies and gentlemen, the venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. Um, They are especially industrious in the countries of the six and others which still hope to push into the common market as direct or associate members. The lowering of trade barriers was the signal for their entry. For practical purposes, some of the key European countries are financial servants of the dominant banking monopolist groups, the Morgans and the Rockefellers. Despite all the power pertaining to such important banks as the Société Société Générale de Belgique, uh, Bank de Brussels, Crichton Bank, Bank Lambert, to such important industrial finance groups as Solvay, Boll, Brufina, Confinandis, uh, Petrofina, Belgium, with its appendage Luxembourg, is in reality a financial colony of American investment capital. So again, I mean that that's you know these huge European colonial powers are just financial colonies of U.S. banks, right? That's, again, U.S. hegemony in a nutshell, right? Everyone is a colony of the great empire. It's just a matter of, are you a super colony where you were mostly a colonizer and you're only subservient to America, or are you a supra colony um, where you're kind of the victim of the entire slate of the colonialism? 39 new companies were established in Belgium in 1959 by foreigners. In the year 1961, the number of new foreign companies set up had grown to 237. Sums invested from abroad has swollen from 2,457 million, so I guess that's 2.5 billion Belgian francs in, in 1959 
to 6.6 billion Belgian francs in 1961. Of this last figure, almost 60%, that is 3.9 billion Belgian francs, was furnished from American sources. Henry Costin, in his revealing book on the ramifications of banking finance, Le Europe des Bankers, declares that the enterprise is not limited to the territory of the kingdom, and that the Belgian ex-colonies have not been ignored. One might not even ask if the sanguinary events in the Congo were not caused by the merciless struggle going on between rival financial groups, he concludes. American finance capital, of course, had a field day in Germany during the post-war occupation. German industry and finance, already linked to American industry and finance by cartel and trust arrangements, became even more heavily penetrated by the powerful United States monopoly groups. The giant German banks, Deutsche Bank, Dresdner Bank, Descanto, Gelichaft, Commerce Bank, the mighty German trust, Krupp, Bayer, Bedishi, Andlin, Soda Fabric, Heisch, and Siemens are all strung to American capital, in many ways subordinate to it. Italian banks are in much the same position. The Banco Commerciale Italiano, Banco di Roma, Medio Banca, Credito Italiano are all in several ways tied up with American finance capital, either directly or indirectly. Examples can be stretched across the world to Japan, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. This financial dependence upon America has been put by Lord Bessert, Bearstead, chairman of M. Samuel & Company, at the 1963 annual meeting when he reported the 16.66% acquisition of the company's shares by the Morgan Group. We will not be the first merchant bank to have part of its capital owned by American interests. This tedious statement is a public confession of Europe's subservience to American financial monopoly, a monopoly expressed in the strategic and political alliances that bind European capitalism to American capitalism. European statesmen are deeply conscious of the inferior standing, but in the main feel there is little they can do to adjust the opinion. Resentment, however, there is, and in France it has expressed itself in General de Gaulle's stand on an individual French nuclear striking force, in his overtures to Adenauer, a former German counselor, and his attempts to exclude Great Britain from the common market as the long arm of the United States, and more recently, in the overtures to China and his tour of Latin America. All these are efforts to arrest America's dominance of Europe and to exert French independent action on the international front. Such attempts, however, have little chance of success, nor can they make but a passing impression on the world scene. They are in reality expressions of a deep, competitive conflicts within capitalist imperialism, which exist below the surface federations and alliances, conflicts rooted in unequal development of the contestants and the unequal development of capitalism. Because what other kind of development does capitalism ever, ever, ever give? Um, Britain, as the forerunner of the Industrial Revolution, became the workshop of the world, the carrier of the world's goods, the foremost thruster for imperialist control from the city of London. Her decline set in with the upsurge of the younger, more vigorous capitalist states of Germany and America. The two world wars were a test of their strength against the older established capitalist countries and against each other. The United States came out triumphant both times. Still, the city of London... 
only slowly giving way to Wall Street as the symbol of the world money power. It hopes to resuscitate itself by spreading into the European common market. Uh, those days are over. Brexit happened. Sorry. Sorry, Kwame. <laughs> they joined. They came in. They went out. They've been all over the place. They've been all over the place. Uh, even though it must do so in alliance with and subordination to American financial monopoly. Surplus capital in France was more heavily invested in the less advanced countries of Europe, Russia, Poland, Hungary, Romania, than the, either Britain or Germany, although they too had large investments in the same European heavy industries, armaments, mines, and oil fields. Everybody, however, turned to the primary producing countries of the world, alienating some as outright colonies under political rule, subserving and exploiting others as spheres of investment on a semi-colonial pattern. Because of their late start, German and American capitalism pressed forward with the amalgamation of industrial combines and the monopoly of finance capital more hurriedly than did either Britain and France, whose supremacy on the colonial plane assured their hegemony, interrelated at several points, even while competitive, on the international financial level. German financial monopoly took a beating in the defeat of 1918, when the colonial world was redivided, and again in 1945. American capitalism, on the other hand, owing to geographical and territorial advantages, the last inherent in its political union, continued to make rapid strides and was the real victor of both world wars. Expansion of American financial and industrial monopoly, however, was not confined to Europe. The balance of Western financial power began to tilt towards Asia and Africa, a process that has been sped up since the end of the Second World War with the breakdown of colonial rule. And that is as good a place to end it as any this week. Mm. Um, a banger of a, a beginning of this chapter. I mean, holy cow, he is coming yeah. out swinging on everybody, and I love it. He is. He's also driving very hard on this idea, and it makes sense, right? Where Germany and America were the real competitors through the World War. I mean, obviously, socialism rose up after the First World War, and obviously, that was a conflict. The entire West, including Germany and the United States, were against and have fought any time they haven't been at war. But the primary conflict in, in the World Wars, it was all of these European contradictions, especially colonial contradictions, came to a head where all of these coalitions fought. But what it really, really was, was the late industrializers. In the First World War, it was Germany and Austria-Hungary um, and and uh, Ottoman Turkey, or Ottoman Empire at the time, um, were late to the industrialization. They were fighting the older industrialized countries, and then the other late industrial realized country who was not physically connected the united states and then later it was germany and you know italy and japan it was the other you know late industrializing remaining powers against again the late industrializing united states in coalition with the older industrial powers who would have to be subservient the united states because everyone in europe would just damage each other and both times mostly from as he stated isolation jumping in late getting to be the country creating war goods because again from that isolation and from jumping in late their factories weren't decimated so they got to be the great seller and producer of all the war goods these things launched america into victory in the world wars and so in the first world war you know colonialism came to a head and then everybody got weakened so socialism could rise up and the second world war fascism directly challenged socialism and socialism won and that's where most of the fighting was and the real ideological battle was but the world battle was within colonialism both times and both times it was germany the united states and both times from isolation from jumping in late the united states just flat out won and that 
built American hegemony. It it did, and it will continue to until something radically changes that mm-hmm. that dynamic. Uh, hey, I see you, China. I see what you're doing, <laughs> and I appreciate it. That being said, if you would like to get in contact with us, there are a number of different ways you can do that. First of which is Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com. Uh, next up would be Twitter. Our Twitter is at Mark's Madness Pod. DMs are open if you need to contact us there for any reason. And the uh, link to our Discord server is in our Twitter bio. Uh, and the Discord server is the third and last place you can find us. Uh, I am there all the time. David is there upon summons. Uh, it is just a good community of great people, and I am proud to be a part of it and love that it exists. Uh, all of that, David, time for a disclaimer. Yeah, um, so obviously we started this podcast, uh, Nathan came to me and he was like, hey, I want to read Capital. You've read Capital before, so we should read Capital together. And that was a great idea. That's the kind of book you want to read and discuss in a group, any t- uh, type of philosophy or history. You want to read as a group, you want to make sure you get the context, make sure you understand how it applies to you, what it means so you can get the most out of it. Uh, so what our hope was, since we just decided to go ahead and record that, just in case we could share it, and lo and behold, we're here, was that hopefully you're in some kind of party, some kind of organization, and in your organization, in your political education group or reading group, you're reading these works, and we're reading them along with you. We could be another point of discussion, another voice in the group, another piece of context of bringing what these discussion groups are meant to bring. Um, let's say that's not happening and your group's reading something shorter or something that's more applicable to uh, certain projects you're working on now um, and you're just reading this on your own. Hopefully we can be that reading group. We can give you that point of discussion. We can give you that other voice for the context and make sure you're truly absorbing the work and understanding the work. And let's say that's not happening and it's either like this book where we're kind of an enhanced ebook reading it word for word uh, or one of the books where we summarize it whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you because we want this work out there guiding your actions when your actions or your practice um, is infused with theory it becomes praxis praxis is theory and action without theory praxis can't exist because it is theory and action and without the praxis theory is completely useless they go hand in hand they're tied at the hip Amen, as always. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.